Salvation Now podcast, where you'll discover and be equipped with keys from the Word of God that will pave the way to God's unlimited blessing in your life. Now, here's your host, Evangelist T.J. Malkanji. Effective prayers revolutionize your prayer life today. I wanted to do this broadcast because I get a lot of messages from people who are kind of lost in their prayer life. They don't really know what they're doing. And uh, I've said this oftentimes on the broadcast, you don't just pray to pray. Contrary to other religions that tell you you should pray out of discipline, you should pray because it's the right thing to do. Although it is a discipline for the Christian and although it is the right thing to do, we have another motivation, another reason why we should be praying. And that is that God has already said in Jeremiah 33.3, if you call unto me, I will answer you and I will show you great and mighty things which you don't know of. So God has invited us to pray. God would not invite you to pray unless he wanted to do something while you pray. And because of your prayers, everything in life, there's a cause and there's an effect. Science is observation of cause and effect. In the spiritual realm, there are causes and there are effects. I think it was John Wesley that uh, quoted, and he, he didn't quote it, he, he coined the term, he coined the quote, that it seems to me that God will do nothing on the earth except in response to man's prayers, to people praying. And that is a truth throughout the entirety of the Bible. Acts chapter 12, you have J- uh, James that gets arrested by Herod and beheaded, and there's no record of the church praying for James. Nobody got together and prayed. They probably had this mentality, well, you know, God's going to deliver him. You know, God, the Word of God says He'll deliver us, so, you know, let's just... Uh let, let's just believe for that. But they didn't get, there was no prayer meeting for James as he was arrested and put in prison. He got his head chopped off. Then Peter gets arrested and Peter gets thrown in prison. And the church must have gotten together and said, listen, if we don't pray for this, they're going to they're gonna start knocking them down like dominoes and eventually it's going to get to us. Why don't we start praying fervently? And the Bible says it, fervent prayer was made for Peter on behalf of, Uh, by the church on behalf of Peter. And they stormed heaven, the Bible says. And Peter's story didn't end the same way as James's story. Read it in Acts chapter 12. The Bible says when they prayed, as they were praying simultaneously while this was going on, in one location they're praying, in another location Peter's in a prison cell sleeping, and the scripture says an angel comes beside him, knocks him on the side, and says, get up and follow me. He leads him right outside of the gate. Every Like the prison doors open, the shackles and chains fall off. They get outside the gate of that prison, and he gets let out then he finds uh mary's house he must have thought mary's a prayer warrior if i got delivered tonight i was sleeping so it couldn't have been my faith she must have been praying goes to mary's house and behold there's a prayer meeting happening happening at mary's house and the bible says he knocks on the door and one little girl one teenage girl is the 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 one who had faith to actually answer the door and say hey peter's there none none of the others rush to the doors see that's what happened a lot of people pray And they don't expect anything to change. Out of everyone that was praying at Mary's house, only one teenage girl had faith to come and answer the door. When she reported that Peter was at the door, you know what their answer was? No, it's his ghost. No, it's his spirit. Peter's dead. We know it for sure. What were you praying for? If you're you're praying for something, then 
maybe, just maybe, you should learn to expect that God is faithful, who doesn't just invite you to prayer, but He actually is eager and willing to answer your prayers. The invitation that God has sent you to pray is proof that God desires to answer your prayers. So that means we should enter His gates with a bold confidence that and an expectation that what we ask for, God is going to bring to pass. That's what the secret of Abraham's life was. He was fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able to perform. There's so many people that are praying because it sounds nice. They're praying in like this hopeful, wishful thinking. Remember, faith is not, um, hope is not what brings answers to prayers. Jesus didn't tell the woman with the issue of blood when she received her miracle that uh, daughter thy hope has made thee well he said your faith has made you well there's there's hope has its place hope paints the picture hope shows you what is available to you it puts something in you it actually is the first um the first motivation it's the first thing that inspires you to pray it's hope because if you don't have hope you'll never even pray so hope is good i also want to clarify there's a human hope and then there's a godly hope the human hope is I wish this would happen. I hope things turn out for me. Wow, I, I really, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really pulling for that to happen. That's a human hope. That hope is, has no bearing. It has nothing, it, it doesn't produce anything. That's not the hope that Paul talks about in the Bible. It's not the hope that Jesus spoke of and it's not the hope that the writer of Hebrews talked about. The hope that is godly, the Bible says now faith is the, the expectation of things hoped for, remember it's, it's the substance of things hoped for, the expectation of things not yet seen. So the Bible talks about faith and hope working together. The human hope is I wish I have it. The godly hope is it's in God's word. I've, I have a mental picture of what I can, you know, when you start to study the, the, the gospels and you see what people receive from heaven, that builds a hope in you. That hope then paints a picture of what your life can look like and then faith comes behind it to actually acquire that which you hope for. You know, faith is stretching out, stretching out into the unseen realm of hope and pulling it down into reality. And so we're not, we're not hoping for things in prayer as if like we wish, we, we wish it happens. We're not throwing pennies in a fountain of water and hoping things turn out. There is a godly hope that Abraham had. The Bible says in hope against hope, he believed. So the godly hope actually pushes you to believe. And when you start to believe and you start to, 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 to expect God to pull through, you start to act like Abraham. He didn't waver in unbelief. He grew strong in faith, fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able to perform. What God had promised, the promises of God are proof that God is eager to perform those things for you today. And it's prayer. The transaction happens in prayer. Because when we're praying, we're using the currency we have, which is called faith. And when we use, when we spend that currency of faith in prayer, we receive withdrawals from heaven, which is answers to those prayers. James chapter 5 and verse 16, listen to this. So we don't just pray to pray. We're not just praying. You know, it'd be foolish for you to go to a grocery store and just roam the aisles going back and forth 
and just, you know, a, 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 a clerk coming up to you and saying, hey, do you need any help to find something? Are you looking for anything in particular? And you just replied, well, no, nothing in particular. Just just here to burn some calories today. They'd think you were a kook. I mean, it's crazy. You, you can't just go back and forth. And When I go to a grocery store, I got a list. When you go into prayer, there's too many people that are just there roaming the aisles of heaven, not looking for anything in particular. And just like R.W. Schambach said, when he was praying for a woman, he said, what would you like me to pray for? She said, oh, nothing in particular. And he replied, well then, Father, give her nothing in particular. When you believe for nothing in particular, you'll receive nothing in particular. But when you start to have a list, when you go to prayer with a list, Lord, I'm here. I'm here knowing that your word says I can have, you know, I wrote it on Twitter today. I wrote this on Twitter and I think it, it'd be good for me to share it here. I wrote that if you don't know God's word, you'll perceive anything that comes your way as God's will and it'll create confusion and chaos in your life. So when you don't know the word of God, you end up just accepting everything that comes your way. And prayer is just some formality. But when you understand the Bible, it allows you to discover what belongs to you and what does not belong to you. And then in prayer, you sort the things out. You learn to reject the things that don't belong to you and you learn to believe and contend in faith to receive the things that God has promised can be yours. James chapter 5 and verse 16, listen to this. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer. So that tells you prayer can be ineffective and prayer can lack fervency. Prayer can be ineffective. Just because, you know, well, God knows my heart. The important thing is that you pray. Yes, it's important that you pray. But the fact that God knows your heart does not uh, override the strategy of prayer that God has given us in his word. The fact that God knows your heart, that you have a sincere heart, does not override the blueprint and the, the, um, the, 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 the blueprint that God has given us on how we should pray, the plans of prayer. Just because there's so many people that they like try to use that as a scapegoat, a way of escape. Well, God knows my heart. God, so it doesn't really, it doesn't really matter. And there's no importance as to how I pray. It's not really important, you know, um, how I approach God, how I'm doing things. It doesn't really, it's not really important whether I feel like I'm effective or ineffective. The fact is that I'm just praying and God knows my heart. It doesn't run that way. It's like as if I was driving on a highway on the opposite side of the highway going against traffic and I got pulled over by the police officer and he, he says, sir, do you know why I pulled you over? He said, no, sir, just understand my heart in all this. Sir, you were going in the opposite direction of traffic. You're a hazard out there. Well, you understand God knows my heart. Uh, Mr. Police Officer, you have to know my heart. I didn't really mean to hurt anyone. I didn't really... There's a right way to do things and there's a wrong way to do things. There's a right way to pray and there's a wrong way to pray. You cannot just pray and expect answers to prayers. There's a, there is a Bible blueprint. There are Bible plans that we have to follow that are going to produce prayer, the Bible, uh, answers to prayer. The Bible says, uh, speaking of Elijah, that Elijah was a man of like nature. Actually, let me go back. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah, so avails much is an old fancy way of saying it brings forth many wonderful results. So there's a way, so if you're, let me, 
backtrack even further. If you're not receiving many wonderful results, then it's possible and more than likely that you're not praying in an effective manner or you lack fervency in prayer or you're not righteous in the sense that you don't, you're not redeemed. You don't have Christ in your heart, which at the end of this broadcast, I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive Christ so you can become righteous because a righteousness, and I'm going to get into it when I, uh, further on, but our righteousness is not based on our works. It's not based on our deeds. It's not based on our charitable efforts. Our righteousness is based on what Christ has done for us and receiving the finished work of the cross. So if you are saved and you're still not answer, getting answers to your prayers, then perhaps there's a lack of effectiveness because of the way you've been doing things, or it's a lack of fervency. Both things I'm going to get in if you'll just hold. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So it doesn't say Elijah was some supernatural being that was like, uh, he was just floating everywhere, and he had a halo on top of his head. He was angelic. Everywhere he went, people bowed because of, of, uh, of a radiating glory that came from him. That's not what it says about Elijah. It says he had a nature like us. He looked like us. He smelt like us. He, 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 he talked like us. He, he had to eat. He had to feed. He had to drink. He had to walk to places. He got tired. He got fatigued. He got weary. He had to push through the flesh to actually pray and maintain that fervency in prayer. He wasn't this supernatural being. He was a man with a nature like ours. But when he prayed earnestly that it, did not, that it would not rain, it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. So it shows you that Elijah is not in a class of his own, in a category of his own, that we shouldn't expect to receive any of that. And, and don't expect your life to look anything like Elijah's. No, on the contrary, James is trying to say, what Elijah had, you can have an even greater. He's actually showing you the contrast. This guy was an Old Testament saint. And when he prayed, his prayer carried so much power, he can shut the heavens up for three and a half years so that there's no rain. An Old Testament figure, which Jesus said in Matthew eleven twelve, of all those born of woman, there's not been anyone greater than John the Baptist. And those who are least in God's kingdom in this new covenant are greater than he, greater than John the Baptist. Elijah was not greater than John the Baptist, according to Jesus. And the scripture says, if you're least in the kingdom of God. See, that's where people get it wrong. They think they've got to like go up the scout hierarchy. You know, the scout ladder. We got to get your badge. You got to get, you know, you got to graduate and keep on growing before you can have that type of answered prayers. That you have to like pretty much go through the hoops and, and, and the religious, um, the, 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 this religious like hierarchy that ultimately only apostles can talk like that. Only, only evangelists can pray like that. Only great men of God can talk like that. That's what religion does. You have to reach a certain level before God will ever even hear you or consider you. That you're, you're like a disposable object until you've reached level number 100. That you're not worthy of his, of his ear, of, his, of audience with God. Whereas Jesus taught the total opposite. If you're in Christ... Of all those born of women under the Old Testament, you're even greater than them. You have a greater privilege and a greater position than them. Because under the Old Covenant, you know, they had to pray and, and really leave it in God's hands. 
I mean, they had to pray and believe God. You know, they had the word of God and all that, but they didn't have they didn't have direct entrance into the throne room of, of of grace and mercy like we do. They didn't have the blood of Jesus that they can use as a passport to enter into God's throne. They didn't have the name of Jesus. They didn't have righteousness in them. They had a, a righteousness based on what they did in their you know pretty much on their actions and they were looking towards Christ eventually coming but they didn't have what we have and yet they produce unfortunately they they produce greater results than many new testament saints in this day and this age simply because they actually believed and were persuaded that God would do something for them so prayer is plugging yourself into heaven's system where God can then install and download every Every blessing that he has for us, reserved for us, and available for us. For things to change positively, prayer must be made. If you do not pray, you will not have. James chapter 4 and verse 3, you have not because you ask not. So if you don't ask, you won't have. Simple. Jesus said, everyone who asks will receive. But if you don't ask, you won't receive. You won't receive. It's impossible to receive from God any other way. God has made one... uh, has, has given us this agency called prayer, this amazing communication service where we can actually talk to God, speak to God, ask what is in our heart. Which, you know, that leads me to another thing is that you having a desire is not wrong. There's a lot of religious teachers and preachers that tell you that you shouldn't desire anything from God, that you should just be happy that you're having fellowship with God in prayer. I'm very happy that we have fellowship with God in prayer. But prayer is not just fellowship with God. And Jesus taught that. And the early church taught that. And Paul taught that. Prayer is not simply fellowshipping with God. Prayer is a means of communication where we use the language of God's word to bring down change. God's intervention in our situation to change things positively through this agency called prayer. We're not praying just to pray. We're praying to change things. Now, there is the prayer of consecration. Jesus prayed that in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where people get messed up. They think all prayer is the same. Well, you know, Jesus said, um, Lord, if thy will, you know, if this cup can pass from me, then, then be it. But if not, let thy will be done. And so sometimes we just got to say, thy will be done. When we're consecrating ourselves to God, yes. When we're consecrating ourselves to ministry, yes. When we're consecrating a decision to God, then yes, thy will be done. Jesus was consecrating his life to, the, to full obedience, even to the point of death on a, on a cross. And so he said, if this cup can pass, then let it be so. If not, not mine will, but thine will, thine will be done. That's the prayer of consecration. There's the prayer of... of, of um, there's the prayer of consecration. There's a prayer of, uh, of thanksgiving, which I'm going to talk about in the coming minutes, where we're just giving God thanks. There's a prayer of fellowship, where we're just, we're just telling God what, how much we love Him and just listening for instructions from God. Listen, you know, prayer is a two-way thing. It's not just us talking. It's us receiving what God has to say. But then there's the prayer of request. And Philippians 4, 6 says, that be ang- we're to be anxious for nothing, but in everything we are to make our requests known to God. So Paul is admonishing the Philippian church, make your requests known to God. Don't sit on the sideline hoping for things to change. Make your requests known to God. And that's what we're talking about today, the prayer of request, the prayer of petition. 
Effective prayers, revolutionizing your prayer life. Key number one to revolutionizing your prayer life. And this is important. Key number one is you need to enter his gates with thanksgiving in your heart. Psalm 100. Psalm 100. This is what David said. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing, not with grumbling. That's where people get it wrong. That's why before they've even lifted up their request of prayer, God's already shut his ears. Because if the Bible shows you the, um, the code of conduct in approaching God and his presence... And doesn't say we're to come before him with complaints in our heart. It says, come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates. Pay special attention to verse 4. Enter his gates. How? So it shows you the code of conduct. The position we're to have as we enter into heaven's gates. You know, if you, were, if you had a, uh, an appointment scheduled with the President of the United States of America... Or, or whatever nation you're in, if you had a, a, an appointment, a meeting with him, would you show up with like shorts and a ripped t-shirt or in your pajamas? Would you show up chewing gum and a bucket of KFC in your hand and just chewing a, a drumstick, fried chicken drumstick with grease coming down your face? Would you show up with, uh, with your fist held high and just angry? And well, maybe some of you would given whatever nation you're in right now given the events that are unfolding, but nonetheless, would you show up with, uh, you know, yelling at him? You'd get, you would get thrown out before he ever even heard you. They, the, the Secret Service would, would launch you out of the White House or whatever uh, parliamentary building, building your, your prime minister or president is in your respective nation. They would have kicked you out long ago. Do you know that that's how some people approach God? They approach God in this... This, this lazy, grumbling, entitled attitude. Why isn't this happening? This shouldn't be happening. And, and then all the, all the, before you even get off your request, God's already said, I can't hear them. I can't hear them right now. Because remember, 1 Corinthians 15 says, don't complain as some of them complain and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Numbers 11 says, And the children of Israel complained against Moses, and they grumbled against the Lord, and the, the anger of the Lord was aroused against the children of Israel. So complaining arouses God's anger, whereas thanksgiving arouses God's favor. Oh man, write that in the, comp the comment section. Complaining arouses... Or let's say it this way, complaining steers up God's anger, whereas thanksgiving steers up God's favor. When you come in, I can't believe this happened. I, God is not, prayer is not a, a, a chance to vent all your feelings towards God. You know the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, a fool vents all his feelings? That it's actually counterproductive to vent your feelings towards God? That it's actually... It, it, it actually irritates God to just hear your grumbling. I can't believe they did this to me. I can't believe. God wants people that will enter his gates with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the passcode to enter into heaven's, heaven's atmosphere. Thanksgiving is the passcode that unlocks the gates of heaven so that you can come in and ask him for anything you need. 
or desire. Enter his gates with thanksgiving in your heart and enter his course with praise. Be thankful to him and bless him for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to every generation. Psalm 92 says it is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord. It's a good thing to do that. And to enter his gates with, um, sorry, it is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises to his name, O God Most High. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 16, it says, Rejoice always and in everything or for everything, give thanks unto the, unto the Lord, which is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So the Bible says that God's will for us is to give thanks in everything to, to the Lord, for this is his will for us in Christ Jesus. You connect, you connect that scripture with Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 36 that says that you have need of endurance now so that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the answer, you might receive the promise. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says that God's will for us in Christ Jesus is that for everything we give thanks. And in Hebrews chapter 10, 35 says that after we've done the will of God, which we've read in 1 Thessalonians 5, the will of God is to give thanks. After we've done the will of God, which is to give thanks, you will receive the promise. So you can't receive the promise until you've done God's will. And what's God's will? especially in prayer, is to enter his gates with thanksgiving in your heart. You look at the life of Jesus. He gets to the tomb of Lazarus. The first thing he does is not to weep and say, God, I can't believe you took Lazarus before his time. I just plead. I plead with you that you would show mercy and raise him up. That's not what Jesus' prayer started with. His prayer started with, Father, I thank you that you always hear me. I mean, what a great thing to do. Before you ask God for anything, why don't you start doing that today? God, I thank you that you hear me. I thank you that you even give me audience. I thank you that you, being the, the great God of all the universe, the El Shaddai, the all-sufficient God, the I am that I am, the everlasting Father, the one who was and is and is to come, the God who created all things through the power of his word, the one who formed every tree, who fashioned everything that we see, that by faith we understand the world, the universe, as great and as grandiose as it is, as huge as the universe is, as expanse as these as this universe is yet you who are so great and glorious choose not only to associate with us but choose to bend your ear and bow your ear to hear that though your face is against those that do wickedly you choose to hear the prayers of the righteous father i thank you that i'm not praying in vain i thank you that you hear me and that you always hear me i mean what a great way to start your prayer I mean, if that doesn't charge, you know what's going to happen when you start to give God thanks and praise? You know, David, I say this often, when David was going to kill Goliath and God was going to give him a victory there, the first thing he did was thank God that he had delivered him from the, po the power of the bear, had delivered him from the paw of the lion, and that this uncircumcised Philistine wasn't going to be any different. You know what that did? When David started to re reminisce on his past victories that God had given him, God gave him power and faith rose up to have present day victory. You'll see when you start to give God thanks for what he has done, it actually increases your faith to ask him if you have any discouragement in your heart or if you've been, if you've been discouraged or if you've been worried about a certain situation on how it would pan out or how it would sort out. When you, when you give God thanks for what he has done, it actually increases your faith uh, in believing that God's going to sort this thing out too. 
But when you f- refuse to thank God for what he's done, it's like, imagine if you had someone in your life, every time you did something for that person, they never, get, they never thanked you for it. They just were entitled. They just expected everything that... Uh, expected you to do everything for them, but they never, they never gave thanks. They never returned to thank you for it. They never, they never showed any signs of appreciation. Would you, in your heart, want to continue doing things for them? No. You, you, you would, you would have a block. And if you did anything for them, you'd have to like go past that. Well, how do you think God feels when time and time again, he's delivered you and he's rescued you and he set you free and he's healed you and he's preserved you from all kinds of calamity and death and tribulation and trials and trouble and you forgot everything and all you ever do is focus on the worry and the problem at hand and you never give God thanks for what he's done. How do you think that makes him feel in heaven? Some people think that God is a machine. That he has no feelings, he has no sentiments, and he's just some like some mindless robot. That's not how God is. He actually has feelings. He actually uh, he he has feelings. He has sentiments. He can feel anger. He can feel jealousy. The Bible says the Lord God is a jealous God. He can feel sadness. He has emotions. He can feel empathy and sympathy. The Bible says we have a high priest who can sympathize in everything because he was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus felt every human emotion, every single human emotion. So how do you think it makes him feel when time and time again, we're overloading heaven's mainframe with every request we have, but we've never taken time. You should look at prayer as like a sandwich. You have two bread pieces on like a hamburger. Let's talk about a hamburger. Some of you are fasting, I'm I'm sorry. But you have a hamburger. You have one bun on top. You have the meat, lettuce, you know, onions, salad, lettuce or whatever, salad, uh, tapenade, olive tapenade, however you want to structure your hamburger. And then you have your other bun underneath. You should look at prayer that way. That each bun represents thanksgiving. I'm going to enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Then you have the lettuce of consecration. You have the tomatoes of of fellowship, and then you have the the meat of requests, and then you finish it off. You finish it off by further thanksgiving. So you start off by thanking God for what He has done, and then you finish off by thanking God for what He will do based on what you just asked Him. And I'll say this in the spirit of food right now. You're not entitled to a change of menu in what God has already set before you, until you thank God for what He's already done. You cannot upgrade your menu of blessings until you thank God for the prior menus that He's given you. So look at it as like a prayer sandwich. I'll enter His gates with thanksgiving, and then in everything, I'm going to, Philippians 4, 6, make your request known to God through prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but by prayer and and supplication, make your request known to God with thanksgiving. So it's not just just making your request now. It's not just, I thanked him, now this is what I need. It's, I'm going to thank God now that everything I've asked him for in this session that I've set aside to pray, God is going to do it. 
Because he's too faithful to fail. You can start saying, God is not a man that he should lie. He's not the son of man that he should change his mind. What he has spoken, he shall do. What he has declared, it shall come to pass. There's no word of God that returns void. Nothing is impossible with God. The same God that delivered David in times past. The same God that delivered the children of Israel. That opened up the Red Sea when there was no way out. He's going to provide a way of escape for me. I know that my my God is too faithful to fail. I know that my God, even if everybody's against me, he's for me and he's going to make a way where there is no way. And you start to thank God, you're going to see, you're not only going to, you're going to leave that prayer closet like Superman, charged. You're going to leave that prayer closet like a lion, ready to take on anything that would come your way. You're not going to look like a depressed coward anymore you're gonna something's gonna come alive in you a confidence by the holy ghost a boldness so number one enter his gates with thanksgiving number two number two enter his gates boldly bible says in hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16 let us enter his gates um or let us come to the throne of god boldly hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16 hold on for some reason i Literally was just studying this before. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne room of grace and mercy that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the Bible tells you the way you approach God. God, I don't want to take up too much of your time. If you'll, if you'll just do this one thing, I, I promise I'll leave you alone. You, you won't get any attention from God. The Bible says you're to come boldly. Where does our boldness come from? Our boldness comes from the understanding of mainly two things. Number one, your righteousness in Christ that you now have imputed to you, not by works that you've done, but by God's grace. And number two, because God has already promised to hear you out. And if you pray anything according to his word, you'll have it. So two reasons why we can approach God's throne boldly. I'm going to focus on number one today. And that is understanding your righteousness through redemption. That you're not some sinner saved by grace. And ultimately you're still stained by sin and you're still a wretched human. You were a sinner. You've been saved by grace. He who knew no sin became sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So you are not, the Bible doesn't call you a sinner after Christ. The Bible actually says you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but I want to call myself by what the Bible calls me. That's what the word confession means. The word confession, which the Bible says we're to hold fast to the confession of faith. What does the word confession mean? It means to say the same thing, to speak the same thing that God says, to say what God says. So I'm going to say what God says about me. I don't care how I feel. I might not always feel righteous. I might not always feel anointed. I might not always feel like God is hearing my prayers. But I'm going to confess. I'm going to say what God said about the situation. I am righteous. I am anointed. I have audience with God. And if I call unto him, he will answer me and show me great and mighty things which I know not of. I know that these things are true because all things concerning all things in this book I consider to be right. Doesn't matter. Feelings are fickle and changing. God's word is eternal and unchanging. So our boldness comes as a result of our understanding that you're not a rag any longer. 
You were. The Bible says we were all sinners. We were all subject to God's wrath. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were cut off from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers to the covenants of promise. We were strangers and foreigners to the household of God. We were far off, the Bible says. There was a gap between us and God that could not be filled outside of Christ. The Bible says we were under the control of the spirit of the power of the air and were children of disobedience and were destined to wrath even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love that he has for us, he's made us alive together in Christ Jesus. I'm not dead in sin, I'm alive in Christ. Write that in the comment section. It's an amazing, an amazing confession to make. I'm not dead in sin, I'm alive in Christ. I'm not dead in sin, I'm alive in Christ. I'm not dead in sin, I am alive in Christ. The Bible says sin, we should reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, the part of the, the, the results of Jesus' blood being shed for us was not to cover up our sin, it was to take out the consciousness of sin in us. There's too many Christians that are sin conscious. They're sin conscious. They only meditate on their sin. They meditate on their downfalls. They meditate on what they've done, their failures. Let me ask you something. The Bible says in Hebrews 4, 40, uh, Isaiah 43, 26 and 27, the Bible says, I will make a covenant with them in those days. I will make a covenant with them in those days. And their sins and lawless deeds, I will remember no more. I will blot out their sins. And their sins and lawless deeds, I will remember no more. David said in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits. He forgives all our sins. And if you go down a few verses, it says, As far as the east is from the west, so has he blotted out our sins from his sight. So my question to you is, if God has forgotten your sin, if God has wiped out your sin, has buried it, the Bible says, in the sea of forgetfulness, and has put a sign there that says, No fishing in this pond. If God's done that, why do you keep bringing it up? Why do you keep reminiscing on it? I'm so hooked on this message that I'm preaching to you right now that I was literally driving once with my wife and we were in a car. We got to a stop sign and there was a guy next to me in the car and I looked at him and I said, man, this guy looks so familiar. He looks, I know this guy. I, I, I just don't know where, I, but I know him. His face is ringing so many bells in my mind right now. I, I, I know who he is, but I couldn't put a finger on it. I started to think and think and think. Well, comes to me after a little while of, of thinking and pondering and really trying to dig down deep as to who this guy was, that, this was my, that guy was my old drug dealer that I bought drugs off of many times. So imagine the work that God did in me. I, I had like interactions with this guy all the time. 
God not only forgave me of my sin, but I still carried the guilt of my past. And I just tried to hide from it. And every time I'd see something that rung up a thought from my past, I'd just feel bad about it again and just get, you know, deeply condemned and convicted and just feel, man, I can't believe I did all those things. God so wiped my slate clean. Oh, hallelujah. And I know there's people that are watching me right now that have the same testimony where you've done some atrocious things in your past. See, being a Christian isn't, we, we, we were perfect people and so God chose us becoming a christian is that we understood we have fallen short of the glory of god we had done awful things we committed cosmic rebellion against god but in all that god demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were committing even the worst of the worst of the things that we've done god sent his son to die a sinner's death so that we the sinner might inherit the king's life and stand in a position of righteousness where we're no longer reminded of our past horrors and our past deeds and our past actions but we're reminded of our glorious future ahead of us because of the promises of God the devil is going to work overtime especially while you're praying to remind you you think you can ask God for that after what you've done it doesn't matter if you sin this morning the blood of Jesus oh hallelujah it still holds power in 2022 it doesn't matter how the time moves and changes the blood is eternal the blood is unchanging it still holds power in 2022 to go to the highest of mountains to flow to the lowest of valleys to cleanse of any sin to wash you of anything that you've done the bible says that the blood has brought us redemption from our past that if the devil ever comes to try and remind you of what you've done instead of reminiscing and buying into his lies begin to remind him of what his past looked like how he fell from heaven how he got destroyed how he took a jesus's heel in his head that cracked his head that the bible says that he's failed time and time again from Genesis to the book of Acts and he's failed throughout history then begin to remind him of his future that until Jesus comes I'm going to make his life a living hell on earth that I have power and authority to trample serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means harm me then go a step further and remind him of his eternal future that there's a lake of fire prepared for him and his demons that he has an eternal torment and torture that shall occur for him and the those that line up their lives with him but as for the righteous we will shine as the stars forever and ever don't buy into the lie the cheap lies that the devil throws your way instead understand that redemption wasn't just God covering your sin God removed your sin God forgot your sin God redeemed you of the past of sin and God wants to cleanse you today of the guilt you still carry because of what you've done some of you you've done crazy things some of you might even had an abortion in the past and you've gotten redeemed you know what's wrong and now you still carry that guilt that you there was a child that could have lived it's done it's it's done that child's in heaven but God wants to, doesn't want you to live in the past and thereby paralyze you and cripple you from ever moving on to the future. God's going to cleanse you from that guilt today in the name of Jesus Christ. Some of you maybe even have, you've gone to prison. You've done some crazy things. Even the law put you behind bars. And you've still, you've still held on to that. The blood of Jesus is cleansing that right now in the name of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name. Zechariah 3 talks about a vision that Zechariah had where he was standing before God and he had dirty garments on him. And the devil, the Bible says, Satan, the accuser, began to accuse him before God day and night. And the Lord finally said, 
Is this not a brand that I have plucked from the fire? And he told the devil to shut up. He literally said, hush and away. And he told an angel, grab this man's dirt, Joshua the high priest, grab his dirty clothes and rip him off. Grab his dirty headband and rip it off. Now take the white clothing that I've prepared for him and put it on. Take the white turban that I've prepared for him and put it on him. For this my son was dead, but now he's alive. This my son was lost, but now he's found. This my son was blind, but now he sees. This my son was dirty, but now he's been clean. This my son was a child of wrath, but now he's a child of destiny. A royal priesthood, a chosen generation, God's holy priesthood, holy possession. The Bible says in Colossians 1 that everything, I mean, I got to read this. I, I was reading this earlier and it, it, it's amazing. If there's one scripture to memorize from today's broadcast, and I know I've thrown out 500 of them, but this one's pretty good. Colossians chapter 1, listen to this. And you, who once were, so it doesn't say you're still, once were alienated from God. So I'm not alienated from God anymore. Quit walking as if you were. You once were alienated. You once were cut off. You once had no access to God. People that pray timid prayers, and you can tell, they grab, you know, they somehow feel courageous enough to go and pray before the church. They grab the mind, Father, we, we just come before you today and uh, we just pray. Uh. And I'm not talking about being eloquent in prayer. It doesn't matter if you sound like you're stammering through your words or not. But there has to be a pressing in your spirit that comes as a result of your boldness and confidence that comes as a result of your understanding of your righteousness in Christ. I'm not coming before him like guarding my head. Like he's, like he's some vicious father that's going to slap me. Like some drunk alcoholic parent. And every time you came home, you, you, you just went straight to your bedroom, tried to tippy-toe through, hoping he didn't hear you as he watched the television on his fourth bottle of uh, who knows what. Some people, that's how they see God. Just trying to stay... Stay as, as quiet as you can around him, lest you awaken him to strike you. The Bible says you once were alienated. You once were enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now, yet now, there's too many Christians that have an Old Testament theology. How many of you know we're, we're just wretched, depraved humans? Does it say that? Paul in Romans 7 was reminiscing of what his life was before he got redemption. When he was going through religious motions, trying to work his way up the religious ladder of his day. And trying to boast in, and make, he was boasting about um, and placing confidence in the flesh. He actually says in Philippians, I, I was a, a Pharisee of a Pharisee. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was, I was under the, the feet of, under the tutelage of Gamaliel, the, the top Pharisee in Jerusalem. I was set to become high priest one day, for goodness sake. Romans 7, he actually says, all of that was nothing. I was a depraved human wretch. It didn't satisfy anything. But thanks be unto God, that now the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the laws of sin and death. So people read Romans 7 and say, we see Paul. Paul called himself a wretched human. He was talking about how he felt before. Read the entirety of the book of Romans. Don't just take one chapter and identify with that. Read the book. See the context. The context of that is he's saying the religious system fails. The works of the law fails. Works nothing. Only through grace, by faith, 
Can you be justified before God? So he goes on to say, in the body of his flesh through death, Jesus has now presented me. And if you read this later on, I want you to take the use out and put your name because it's powerful. In the body of Christ's flesh through death to present TJ holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So in God's sight now, before I was alienated, before I looked like his enemy. Now I'm holy and I'm blameless and I'm above reproach in God's sight. Imagine that. You're holy. You are a holy priesthood. See, anytime you hear someone say that, I guarantee some of you, because I know this happened to me the first times I started, you know, when I started to get into this, it, it was like hard for me to say I am holy. I am righteous. Because religions taught your entire life. You are ugly. You are dirty. Before Christ, you were ugly. You were dirty. You had nothing good dwelling in you. You were cut off. You were a sinner by nature. When you received God's mercy, He delivered you from the powers of darkness and He put you into the dominion of God's kingdom, of, his, of the dominion of His Son, the dominion of light, in which we have redemption now. In that kingdom, we've put off the old man. We've put off the old lusts of the flesh. We've put off the old appetites. We've been renewed in the spirit of our mind by the word of God. We've put on... This scripture just popped up in my spirit. Ephesians chapter 4. Listen to this. I'm sticking on this point because this is huge. Because even if you have a word, I'm going to get into, even if you entered into his gates with thanksgiving, even if you had God's word in your heart, even if you approach God like a snail, you're, it just negates the rest. This is, this is a foundational pillar for answered prayer, for success in prayer. Ephesians chapter 4, listen to this. But you have not so learned Christ. I mean, let me start with verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord. You should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their hearts darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Being alienated from God's life because of ignorance. When you're ignorance, ignorant to your righteousness and redemption... By Christ Jesus, you alienate yourself. Even though God's in heaven saying, I wish, I wish I could intervene. I wish they would just learn that they don't have to approach me with timidity, but they can come boldly. I wish they would just understand. I wish they would just understand what I've made them to be because of their clothing, of, because of the, the right robes of righteousness that I've clothed them with. Because of the ignorance that is in their heart, because of the blindness of their hearts, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greed. But you have not so learned Christ. So he's saying there are people who still walk and talk like Gentiles. That's pretty much what he's saying. They still walk and talk like Gentiles. They have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, places available to them, but they still talk and they still walk like Gentiles. But you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you've heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. That, verse 22, Ephesians 4, 22, That you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And verse 24, 
See, there's a lot of Christianity that talks about putting off sin, talks about getting away from sin, talks about repenting from sin. We talk about that. I just spent quite a while talking about putting off sin. But the verse 24 moves a step further and says, and now put on. So it's not just putting off the lust of the flesh. It's putting on the new man, which was created according to God in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Hallelujah. I, when I approach God, I approach him with the mindset that I've put off the old sinner TJ. He's dead. He died with Christ. The Bible says I was buried with him in baptism in conformity to his death. And now just as Christ was raised by the glory of the Father, even so we walk in newness of life. I've put off that nature. I've put on a new nature. I've put on new clothing. And it's in true righteousness and it's in true holiness. Hallelujah. Someone asked, sorry for my question, but what about the timidity of the woman, the timidity of the woman with the issue of blood? The woman with the issue of blood was still under the old covenant. The woman with the issue of blood was under, uh, uh, was under the, the, the old covenant. She, she didn't have the righteousness of Christ. She didn't have that. She hadn't been taught. I mean, it's only years later that Paul actually has this revelation of us putting on Christ and putting off the flesh. So the woman didn't have uh, access to that. And then two, I'll say that actually she was not timid. I know she was timid in coming before Christ afterwards when she received her miracle because if she was discovered out, she was supposed to be in quarantine because she had a, that issue of blood under the law. They were forced to be in quarantine. They were forced to be uh, exiled and isolated because they were, de they were deemed uncleaned, unclean by the law and punishable by death if they were outside their area of isolation. So when she came before Jesus after she received the miracle, she was like, oh man, I'm going to get stoned if they find out what, that I was out. But if you see uh, why she touched Jesus, it's actually the opposite of timidity. The very reason, the very fact that she was out of her isolation area shows that she had boldness in her because she was risked getting stoned um, based off the Levitical law. And then she stretched forth and touched the hem of his garment and she in bold faith declared, if I could just touch the hem of, her, of his garment, I know I will be made well. So I actually say she's the opposite of timid. She was actually very bold. She's the only one. Many people were around Jesus that day, but she was the only one to actually stretch and touch and receive because of her bold faith. Um, number two, enter his gates boldly. Number three, you need to have a word when you come before God in prayer. Don't come, you don't go to war without a gun. And if you had a gun, you don't go to war without bullets. Could you imagine? I mean... <laughs> I'm in like some war area, war field, and I have a gun, but I didn't take any ammunition with me. You can shoot all you want. All you're going to hear is that little trigger ringing, ringing, but there's not going to be any, there ain't going to be any explosive power that triggers off a bullet. There's no bullets there. There's no gunpowder. There's nothing to actually make that weapon useful. In the same vein, prayer is an amazing weapon, and the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but they are mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. We can use this weapon of prayer to pull down the strongholds of the enemy that he set up all around us in our lives, in our businesses, in our families, in our minds. You can pull down these strongholds through this magnificent weapon called prayer. But if you're not loading your prayers with the word of God, you have no ammo. 
God said what he meant and he meant what he said and we receive it as a fact in our spirit. The word of God we receive as a fact in our spirit. But now, we, the Bible says in Ephesians, uh, Isaiah 43, 26, we are to put God in remembrance. So it's not enough just to receive God's word as fact in your spirit. You now have to put God in remembrance of his word. He said, put me in remembrance of my word. State your case from my word that you might be acquitted. This is huge. This is one of the, the most common mistakes made in prayer. And that's going to God without having a word. I'm not saying having a word in your spirit. Some, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about having a prophetic word from a, a pastor, an evangelist. Or so, those are great. We don't despise prophecy. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, about a word from God's word. From, from the source of all words. Someone, what, what, what's point number three? Point number three is have a word. Have a word from God. And I'm, like I said, I'm not talking about a word from a prophet. I'm not talking about a word from a friend. I'm talking about a word from the Bible. It's not, it's not that God is forgetful that he said, put me in remembrance of my word. It's that we are forgetful. And the foundation of prayer is faith. And faith begins where the, the will of God is known, believed, and acted upon. So God understands human nature. He understands our uh, ability to forget things easily. So he then admonishes us saying, put me in remembrance of my word. It's not because God has Alzheimer's. It's because God is actually, uh, he's implemented this system that when you're putting God in remembrance of his word, you're actually encouraging and stirring up faith in you. And faith is the foundation of all answered prayers. Put me in remembrance of my word. A wordless prayer is a helpless prayer. The word of God has to be set. Like, I, here's a practice I like to do. For any prayer request point that I have, I'm not going to God unless I can find at least three scriptures that guarantee that God's going to answer that prayer. Here's an amazing practice you can do in your, in your prayer life. Whatever prayer requests you have, find at least three scriptures that guarantee that God wants you to have that thing. Then when you pray, back it up by those three scriptures. Use it as ammunition in your prayer and see how God will act quickly on whatever you're asking him for. for. It's like a lawyer. You can't, have a law you can't have a lawyer go into a courtroom and see the judge and the judge, hey, what's your case? And then the lawyer just get on his knees and start crying and saying, you have to believe me. My client is innocent. He's a good guy. He's a great guy. There's no way he could have done this. I promise you, he's, he, he's innocent. The judge is not going to rule in favor of that guy's case. Why? Because he has no evidence. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the evidence of things hoped for. The evidence we have is the word of God. Because faith cometh by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of God. So faith, which we can just interchangeably use, the word of God is the evidence of the things that we're hoping for, uh, the substance of things we're hoping for, and the evidence of things that we don't yet see. So if you don't have evidence, the things you don't see, you'll never see. But if you see 
the evidence from his word, then though you don't see it yet in the physical, you'll see it eventually. If you'll not give up in praying and be persistent in your praying, you'll see it manifest in the physical. That's another thing. People give up too quick. Well, I know what the word of God says, and I've prayed that, but I've never seen anything. And I, haven't, I don't see anything changing yet. Then they give up. Elijah prayed for rain, not once. He prayed seven times. And every single time, he, the servant came back, there's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing. The sixth time, there's nothing. Elijah never gave up. He still fervently and effectively prayed. And you want to know something amazing? Going back on how Elijah was a man of like nature, and it wasn't because he was special that he was able to pray for rain to stop and rain stopped and pray for rain to come and rain came. It was because he was actually, if you study the, the, the Pentateuch, you'll see that God said, if my people turn to false idols, I will shut the heavens up over their land and I'll bring a drought. What was happening in Israel in those days? Ahab and Jezebel had stirred up many prophets of God to turn to Baal. And there were many prophets of Baal. So Elijah was actually, when he prayed for rain not to come, he was just praying according to God's word that already stated, if my people turn to the Baals, if they turn to false gods, I'm going to shut the heavens up. So Elijah's prayer of shutting the heavens up was actually Bible-based. He had a word. He wasn't just an angry dude and said, you know what? To heck with you guys. No rain for three years. He was standing on a word. Deuteronomy 28. I'll shut the heavens up and make it like bronze. And I'll bring a drought on the entire land. And nothing will grow. And that's what happened for three and a half years. Then what happened in 1 Kings chapter 18? 21, verse 21. Elijah is on Mount Carmel. And he contends with the prophets of, of Baal. And he gives them an ultimatum or a challenge. He says, if... The God who answers by fire, we're going to declare him to be God. All of the Israelites, they agreed. The, the prophets of Baal, they lit up their sacrifice. They, or they didn't lit up. They put up their sacrifice. They, put, they, they started to cut themselves with stones and did these religious demonic ceremonies. Nothing happened for a long while. Elijah actually started to mock them and said, Perhaps your God is on a bathroom break and he's not hearing you. Maybe he's sleeping. Perhaps he's taking a nap. He was mocking them. It's a good thing to mock the devil. It's bad to mock people. It's a good thing to mock the devil. Then Elijah says, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If God is God, serve him. But if Baal, then serve him. Let the God that answers by fire be God. And he prays a 15-second prayer. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known this day that you are God and that I'm your servant and I've done these things at your word. Fire fell from heaven and consumed the altar and licked up all the water. Then what happened? They've chased down the prophets of Baal and chopped off all their heads. And Israel in unison said, the Lord, he is God, restored righteousness in the land. Remember what the Bible says? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear them from heaven and I will heal their land. Deuteronomy 28 says, If you will diligently hearken unto my voice and set me as number one in your life, that I will, I, will, I will bring rain in your land in due season and fruitful seasons, and I will make the heavens above you to, to, to be open like never before. 
So the drought came because Elijah acted on the word that if you turn from God and serve the Baals, drought comes, no rain. But when they turned back to God, Elijah then acted again on the word that if you turn back to God, I'll heal your land and I'll make rain come down for you and fruitful seasons. And Elijah prayed again and rain came. So even Elijah, nothing was but accident. He had a word that he stood on. Daniel chapter 9, listen to this. Daniel had a word that he stood on. Daniel chapter 9 verse 1, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of Medes, or Medes, who was king over the realm of Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So Daniel saying, I understood by reading the prophet Jeremiah, his books, I understood that this captivity was only to endure and last for 70 years. We've come up to those 70 years. So what does he do? So he had a word from God. God, you said 70 years and no longer. What did Daniel do? Verse 3, Daniel 9, 3. Then I set my face towards the Lord God to make requests by prayer and by supplication. So he read the word, discovered from understanding the book of the prophet Jeremiah that it was only to last 70 years, Realize we're about 70 years now. Immediately, it steered him up to set his face towards God and begin to contend through faith to receive uh, that breakthrough nationally for Israel to leave the Babylonian captivity. So Daniel prayed and he was effective in prayer because he had a word that he was standing on. If you don't have a word, you have no foundation on which you can pray that prayer. The word of God is what gives you confidence that God's willing to do it. I said it before. I wrote it on Twitter this morning. When you don't know God's will, anything that comes your way, you pretty much accept it as fate, which I don't believe in that. When you do understand God's word, then you can take inventory on what you're seeing in life Sickness isn't part of the will of God. It's not found in God's word. He never said it. You know, it's interesting. Out of all the blessings for obedience that God has listed in the entirety of his scripture, it never says, if you'll obey me, I'll make, I'll make you sick. So sickness is not part of God's will for my life. Because I know that, if there's sickness present anywhere in your house, you, can, you now have a word to stand on. You take three, three scriptures. Exodus 15, 26, I am the Lord, your healer, Jehovah Rapha. I'll not allow any of the diseases to come on you that came upon the Egyptians. Two, uh, Exodus chapter 23, 25, if you'll obey and serve me, you'll spend, if you'll obey and serve me, I'll bless your bread and your water and take sickness out of your midst. Great. Number three, in the book of Jeremiah, it says, I'm going to bring you health and a cure and I'm going to reveal to you the abundance of my peace and my, and my truth. Those are three scriptures right off the top of my head four Isaiah 53 by his stripes were healed you have four scriptures there that you now can bring to God and say Lord here are four witnesses from your word the Bible says on the presence of two or three witnesses let a fact be established if you have four witnesses then that fact is is super established and so now you have a confidence so after you have God's word you have to decide now is God a liar 
Because you have God's word, you have his will. The scriptures cannot be broken. You have to now decide, is God a liar? Because if he is, then I really can't trust him in that. Is he unreliable? Then I can't rely on him for that. But if we really believe that God is trustworthy, that he's faithful and true, that the Bible calls him the faithful and true, the first, uh, the faithful and true witness, the God who cannot lie, the God who does not change, the one that the Bible says it is impossible for God to lie, that even if men are faithless, he abides faithful, he cannot deny himself, and that he, the Bible says he actually holds his word above his own name, he does not deny his word, he, he holds his word above his name, then we have no choice but to believe that whatever we bring to God in remembrance from his word, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. Essentially, prayer is approaching God as a lawyer. This is the constitution. Just like in every courtroom, the judge doesn't respect, if it's a good judge, an unbiased judge, he does not respect uh, the person. That's what they liked about Jesus. They said, teacher, we know that you, you teach the word of God in truth, nor do you regard the person of man, for you do not care about men. He isn't saying you don't care about people. He's saying you don't care about their opinions. You don't care about what they, you, you, don't, you don't judge unrighteously. You judge righteously. When you look at a man, you're not treating him differently from another. God treats everybody uh, equally in that he made a universal invitation for all to come to him that are weary and heavy laden that he might give them rest. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't care about your background. doesn't care how much money you have. So a good judge should also be doing that. They don't care about how much money they have. They can't be bought off. They don't care about their education. What they care about is the facts. And they care about their case lining up with the law of the land. In the same vein, when you approach God, Think of it, you're going before the judge of all the earth. Luke 18 says, Shall not the judge of all the earth hear you, hear his righteous or his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he not avenge them speedily? I tell you, he will give them speedy answers to their prayers. Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. So when we approach, we approach God, see him as a judge. And the word of God is his constitution. And we're making our case built off the law of heaven. And we're, and we're confident that because our case is built off heaven's law, we, we don't have to wonder whether it's going to come through. It's going to come through. And I have perfect rest. I have perfect peace. I don't have to worry. I don't have to be anxious for it anymore. The, the judge of heaven has ruled in my favor. And what's not manifest will manifest. What I don't see with my natural eye, but I see with my spiritual eye, I'm going to see with my natural eye. Number three, have a word. Number four, actually I have to do this on number three because I've been wanting to say this. I've never preached this before and I've, I've been wanting to preach this. Listen to this. Matthew chapter 20, verses 20. Verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And Jesus said to her, what do you want? So he gave her carte blanche. What do you want? Ask me anything. She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered and said, You don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? They said to him, We're able. So he said, and they didn't know what they were talking about. You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. 
Verse 21, the, the mother of Zebedee is uh, approaching Jesus. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Ask me anything. She asked something that was not a promise from the word of God. It wasn't something that God had already listed out in his word uh, that he would do. It wasn't part of his covenant. It wasn't a, a promise to Zebedee's sons that they would have this. He never mentioned that. So what did Jesus say? You don't know what you're asking for. You, don't, you have no backing for that request. You have no foundation for that request. You have no... You have no... Uh, you can't ask that, pretty much. Because there's, there's no word that you're standing on to bring that to me. So I can't answer that. He pretty much straight out said, no, you can't have that. It's not for you. I can't even give it. It's those who my father has reserved for. But then contrast this with verse 29. Same chapter, chapter 20, verse 29. And I believe by the Holy Ghost's uh, wisdom, when Matthew was inspired to write these scriptures, he included in the exact same chapter, and obviously there weren't chapters or verses, but in the exact, like pretty much, a couple of verses later on. I believe it was inspired to be that way because there's a contrast happening right now between someone who approached God with a baseless request, there's no base or foundation to the request, and then, verse 29, as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him, and behold, two men, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David, the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. They cried out all the more, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. I used to think they were telling them to be quiet because they were annoying, they were undignified, or they were blind. But I realized later on, the very fact that they were calling him son of David irritated the religious people. Because son of David was a term, it was a title reserved only for the Messiah. So for them to say son of David, they were saying, you're the Messiah. You're the coming one. You're the promised seed of Abraham. And it irritated them. So they said, quiet, you're going to get us killed. So Jesus stood still and called him and said, what do you want me to do for you? Does that remind you of anything he did in the same chapter? He said to Zebedee's, uh, the sons of Zebedee's mother, what do you want me to do for you? The same question. What do you want me to do for you? In Zebedee's son's case, didn't work out. He said, I can't do it for you. But look at it, what happened here. What do you want me to do for you? They said to Jesus, Lord, that our eyes may be open. What was the scripture they were standing on? They had a scripture. The fact that they called him son of David, they recognized him to be the Messiah. And every Jew in Jerusalem knew that the Messiah would come and do exactly this. Listen to this. Verse 3, Isaiah 35 and verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful-hearted, be strong, don't fear. Your God is coming or will come with vengeance. And with the reward of God, he will come and save you. And then verses 5 through the end of the chapter, talk about the messianic ministry, what Christ was going to come and do. And the very first thing that Jesus was anointed to do is then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. When they were saying, son of David, they were saying, you're the one that came to open up my eyes. Oh, hallelujah. That's why when Jesus said, come to me, what do you want me to do for you? They said, Lord, open our eyes. You're the one who came to open up the eyes of the blind. Your word says it. I receive it. What did Jesus say? No, no. There's worse things to lose than sight. Better things to gain. That's not what he said. The Lord said he had compassion. 
He touched their eyes and immediately their eyes were open and they received sight and they followed him. You have a contrast there between someone who didn't have the word of God and prayed something and someone who had a word from God, from the Bible and prayed. The one left empty handed, the other left with exactly what they needed. When you go to God to prayer, into prayer today, have three scriptures that prove that God desires you to have what you're asking, what you desire Him for. And that stands as the base, the foundation that will give you confidence when you're praying. He's not a man that he should lie. He's not the son of man that he's changed his mind. Hallelujah. Number four, use the name of Jesus. I'm astonished with how many people end their prayer by saying, in thy name. Who is thy? Who is thy? Why are you so ashamed to say his name? Say his name. The name is so powerful. The Pharisees, when they wanted to eliminate the doctrine of Jesus, they told the, 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 the Peter and John when they had taken them into custody, they said, hey, hey, you can do everything you want. Just don't teach or preach in that name. Don't mention that name anymore. The name of Jesus is what gives power to your prayer. It's what releases heaven's intervention. It's like the endorsement of heaven upon that which you're asking him for. Say his name. Don't be a coward. I remember there was a man of God who went on, a, he was on like, I don't know if it was like a presidential address or something. And uh, he told the testimony later on that there, were, there was a, 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 a Jewish rabbi, there was a Muslim imam, they had a Buddhist priest, they had all kinds of religious uh, leaders that were representing their specific religion and stuff. And he was called to pray the Christian prayer. He was called to pray um, and, and represent the Christian population. And they told everyone in the back room, he said this in his testimony, they told everyone in the back room, you can pray anything, just say God. Don't, don't say, uh, don't mention the name of Jesus. For the Muslims, God is God. To the Jews, God is God. But he t specifically told the Christian, you can pray anything, but mention God. Don't mention the name of Jesus. So he went out and, you know, they all went in succession. The priests, the Buddhists, whatever. They all went up. They all prayed their prayers. Then finally it was his turn. He got up. And instead of being a coward and following those, those, you know, the restrictions they had placed, he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. He got up and said, Father, we come to you in the mighty, matchless, powerful name of Jesus Christ. And then prayed this powerful prayer. And you can see in the background in the video, the people behind him were like, they were like manifesting on stage. They couldn't handle the name. Why do you think Benjamin Watson is on CNN? He's a, he used to be a tight end for the New England Patriots and the New Orleans Saints. And he's telling, talking about uh, the problems in the inner city. He was, he was talking about how um, you know, certain things, crime is so high. And then he starts to talk about you know, like some uh, natural things we can do, some programs we can implement. But then he finishes off his segment by saying, but ultimately... Ultimately, all of these crime problems, drug trafficking problems, they're not going to be solved until people have an encounter with the blood of Jesus Christ. He said that on CNN immediately. CNN, who hasn't had a power outage or some technical difficulties since 1996, all of a sudden, we're having some technical difficulties. Uh, sorry, Benjamin. Anyways, on to the next story. Why do you think? Because the name of Jesus holds power. Why do you think you have someone go on The View with the, those four women? 
who uh, the moment someone mentions the name of Jesus, all of a sudden they lose all their Botox and they shrivel up and they get angry. Ah, they can't handle it because the Bible says, Philippians 2, because of his obedience to the point of death, even the death of a cross, God has highly exalted Jesus and has given him a name that is above every other name. That at the mention of the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven, on earth, and under the earth shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That name holds so much power. The reason being is that the devil got his rear end kicked, his head crushed, his plans foiled when Christ died went down to the lowest parts found the devil's headquarters took the keys of death hell in the grave cracked his head ascended on high and now holds power over death hell in the grave the devil lost the moment Jesus died and rose again it sealed his defeat his eternal defeat every time you mention the name of Jesus you're bringing the devil into remembrance of what that defeat felt like. You're making him re-enter re the feelings he had when he was smacked around at the cross. You're making him to reminisce. You're making those old feelings come up, rise up, and he can't stand it. And demons can't stand it. Because if the powers of darkness had known what Jesus was doing at the cross, they would have never have promoted his crucifixion. But they did it ignorantly, and it sealed their defeat. Now when you mention the name of Jesus, it brings them back to that defeat. It reminds them of their defeat, and it enforces our victory. So don't pray in thy name, in your name. In the name of Jesus, we call it done. And we thank you for it in advance. Amen. In the name of Jesus. It's your passport. It's your passport. I mean, look at the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be, hallowed be thy name. Holy is your name. Even in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught you. Come into his presence, not only with our Father who art in heaven, meaning praise, but holy is your name. Come in the name of Jesus. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, Paul said, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus is our passport into the world of answered prayers. Picture it this way. God has given you a check, a blank check, backed by the resources of heaven. The bank of heaven will back up this check. In the note, it says, my love and my grace for you. And then in the signed area, it's the name of Jesus that's been signed. You can fill up anything from the word on that check. It's been endorsed by Jesus' name when you pray it in his name. And it's backed by heaven's resources. But if you don't pray in Jesus' name, God doesn't endorse that check. You have to pray. John 14, whatever you ask in my name, I will give it to you. John 16, verses 23 to 24. In that day, I say you won't ask me anything. But whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you so that your joy may be made full. For the Father himself loves you. Listen to this. John 16. John chapter 16. I just quoted this, but there's more to it. In that day, you'll ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name. So we're not praying to Jesus. Jesus literally says, you don't pray to me. 
In that day, what is he talking about? That day of redemption. That day you receive Christ. That, that day where you now become holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. That day where you've become a new creation. That day when you get saved. In that day, you don't ask me anything. You don't pray to Jesus. You pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask in my name and you'll receive that your joy may be made full. Listen to this. These things I've spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming where I'll no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I'll tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, again, he's talking about redemption, post-redemption. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I don't say that I'm going to pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and I've believed that I've come forth from God. Bible says in John 15, 16, you do not choose me, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear much fruit and that your fruit should remain and that whatever you ask the Father in my name, in my name, he gave us this amazing privilege to use the name in prayer. Do you know what the name is? Another way to say it, it's the authority. We can use the authority of Jesus' name. We, we can use, we can flash the badge, the passport of the name of Jesus and the Bible says, whatever you ask the Father in my name, obviously, if it's in the word, I'm going to give it to you, that your joy be, may be made full. We pray in the name of Jesus. Number five, and this is the last one, pray in the Holy Ghost. A lot of people hit a wall in prayer because they don't, they've not prayed in the Holy Ghost. They've not prayed in the Holy Ghost. Anytime I get into prayer, the first like 15 minutes, I'm praying in the Holy Ghost. I'm praying in the Spirit. Because Jude verse 20 says, Beloved, pray always in the Holy Ghost, building yourself up on your most holy faith. You want to revolutionize your prayer life? Start by praying in the Holy Ghost. Get baptized in the Spirit. It'll change everything. Why do I say that? Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And verse 26. This is what Paul said. Paul, who said, I pray in the Spirit more than everyone else. That's what he said. I pray in tongues more than anyone. Paul said that. Listen to what he said. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we don't know what we should pray for as we ought to pray. So he's saying sometimes we don't know what to pray for. Even though we ought to know what to pray for, sometimes we just don't know what to pray for. Has that ever happened to you? You got into prayer and all of a sudden you just like, you know, three minutes have gone by and you're like, man, what? I mean, I've, I've prayed for everything I think I know to pray for. When Jesus said, could you not tarry with me one hour? So obviously three minutes is not the goal. You can't pray more than three minutes. There's something wrong. Sometimes it's because we don't know what to pray for. That's why the Bible says, Paul said, the Spirit helps us in our prayer weaknesses. When we don't know what we should pray for as we ought to, the Spirit himself makes intercession for us, listen to this, with groanings that cannot be uttered in a language that you don't understand. Is referring to praying in the Holy Ghost. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Two things you can learn there. One, when you praying in the Spirit is going to charge up your spiritual stamina and your spiritual battery to actually pray fervently. Remember what I said before. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah prayed fervently that it would not rain. How did he pray? 1 Kings chapter 18 tells us how he prayed. The Bible says when he was praying for rain to fall, he had his knees, he had his head between his knees. He was bowed down. 
can imagine he was he was intense there was maybe sweat coming i mean he was going in you talk about going in i've been around people who pray non-fervently and i've been around people who pray fervently non-fervently is like this father i just i just ask if if you can do this for me uh, it'd be great um I just, you know, I leave it into your court, believing you'll give me what you what you think is best, and uh, that's non-fervently. Fervently is, Father, I thank you that your word says that if I'll serve you, you'll bless my bread and water, and you'll take sickness out of my midst. Any sign of sickness in this home, I thank you, God, that it's getting uprooted now. And I refuse to see otherwise. I reject anything that contradicts your word. There has to, if there's no press in your spirit, there will be no prize ahead of you. If there's no press, I press towards the goal, Paul said. There has to be a longing. David said, I pant after thee as a deer panteth for the water creek. Jeremiah 29 says, who is he who has engaged his heart to approach unto me? You have to engage your heart. You can't pray with your mind. Your mind's scatterbrained. You get distracted. You'll be everywhere. When you pray with your heart, look at Hannah. Hannah prayed fervently. She was praying so fervently, Eli the high priest said, this woman's drunk. It's 9 a.m., girl. What are you drinking for? She said, I'm not drunk, I promise. I'm pouring out my heart before the Lord. Eli said, well, if you're praying that way, you look like you're drunk. If you're not drunk and you're praying that way, there's no way God can't hear you. She prayed fervently. There was a press that led her to the prize of Samuel, her child, her male child that she had asked the Lord for. Uh, Romans 12, Paul says that we are to be fervent in spirit. Not, Lord, whatever happens, happens. And we just accept it as your... That's not fervent. That's weak. 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 Pliable spirits. Compromising spirits. That's right. I like what someone, someone wrote. Master Jesus. It's a long name. But be like Jacob. I'm not turning you loose until you... Ble- that... I'm, th- I'm so thankful you wrote that. That's fervency. I'm not leaving you until you bless me. I'm not letting this go by until I see the goodness of the Lord while I'm yet in the land of the living. I reject anything that runs counter to your word. You said in your word, this is what I'm going to... And you know that fervency gets built up when you pray in the Holy Ghost. Because remember, John baptized with water. He that is coming will baptize in the Holy Ghost and fire. The Holy Ghost is fire. So when you're praying in the Holy Ghost, you're like kindling that fire. You're stirring up the fire in you. Smith Wigglesworth used to say, pray in the Holy Ghost 15 minutes a day and dance before the Lord while you do it. And you'll never backslide. You're building up the fire in you so that the fire never goes out on your prayer altar. So number one, the Spirit, when you pray in the Holy Ghost, He helps you in your weaknesses. How many of you have ever prayed in the Holy Ghost and all of a sudden... Someone's face comes to your mind. You're praying in the Holy Ghost, and all of a sudden, you, uh, a specific situation comes to your mind that you have to deal with that you haven't dealt with yet. That's because when you're praying in the Spirit, the Lord is actually showing you what you, ha- what you ought to pray for. Paul said it this way, I will pray in my Spirit, and then I'll pray with my understanding. So when you're praying in the Holy Ghost, 
you're expecting now the Lord's going to show you what you ought to pray for because the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses for we don't know what we should pray for as we ought to. So when you pray, He's going to help you in your weakness. He's going to show you what you ought to pray for. And so when you do know what you ought, that person's face comes to your mind, you know, that person's situation comes to your mind, then you start to pray for what you ought to pray for. That's like pretty much yourself interpreting what the Holy Ghost is speaking to you. So you pray with the Spirit, then you pray with your understanding. So point number one Praying in the Holy Ghost is, gonna, is going to uh, bring a flow to your prayers in the sense that it's going to help you uh, know what exactly you should be praying for. Number two, it unravels God's will concerning a specific situation. So we have the Word of God that helps us, you know, whatever God's Word reveals, we understand that that's His will. But sometimes there's specific things that you don't necessarily have anything in the Word that'll guide you, or at least you haven't come you haven't come in contact with it yet. When you pray in the Holy Ghost, the Lord will actually put scriptures in your spirit that pertain to that specific situation that's going to lead you to a way of escape. The Bible says, Now he that searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. When you pray with the Spirit or in the Spirit, you are going to pray the exact will of God. You cannot pray amiss. James 4 says, you have not because you ask not. Even when you do ask, you ask amiss. You ask mistakenly. You ask in error. You, make, you, you ask in error. When you pray in the Holy Ghost, you never ask in error. So you're praying, the Bible says, exactly what God's will is. You're unraveling God's will concerning specific situations. If I don't have a scripture for something that I'm trying to pray for, I'll pray in the Holy Ghost. And I'm telling you, while I'm praying in the Holy Ghost, I've got all kinds of scriptures that are coming up, like a riff, like a dam that's breaking forth. i got all kinds of scriptures that bubble up from within. That's what Jesus said. He said, come to me all that are thirsty, for out of your belly... He that, he that believes on me, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. This spake he of the Holy Spirit, whom the Lord would give to those that believe on him. For the Spirit had not yet been given, for God or Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now we have the Spirit. The Spirit acts like a river bursting forth, the Bible says. It'll be out of your belly like a river flowing out of you. So when you pray in the Holy Ghost, a river of scriptures will literally flow out of you if you don't know uh, God's specific will pertaining to a specific situation. So it helps you. Praying in the Holy Ghost helps you. 1 Corinthians 14.2 He that prayeth in an unknown tongue edifieth himself. So number one, gives you a flow in prayer. Number two, gives you specific scriptures to stand on in praying for specific matters. And then number three, and I'll finish with this, is that praying in the Holy Ghost charges, edifies you, charges you up, gives you a spiritual backbone so you don't go back into sin. You don't fall into a lukewarm, apathetic attitude. You don't end up being one of those patsy Christians that, you know, just, just, just dead fish Christians. Wherever the stream goes, that's where they go. It takes a live fish to go upstream. And in, this, in, in these end times, we need live, live fish. We need living Christians. We need people who are uncompromising on the Word of God. We need people. They're going to flow against the, the culture stream, countercurrent. Now, wherever the world goes and whatever becomes popular, whatever becomes mainstream, I don't care what's mainstream. I don't care if it's in season or out of season. I don't care if it's popular or unpopular. I'm going with the word. 
And the Holy Ghost builds a stamina in you to actually keep on. Because it's easy. Just like Peter. Peter said, if everyone's made to stumble, I'm never going to stumble, Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you don't carry what is actually needed to follow through with that statement. And this, this night, before the rooster crows, you'll have denied me three times. Peter denies Christ three times, rooster crows. And in Luke's account, it says, and Peter looked at Jesus, and Jesus was looking right at him when the rooster crowed. And he went and wept bitterly. He had a heart. He had a heart. To serve God. He had a heart to go all the way. But he lacked necessary power in his spirit to actually follow through with his words. But notice there was a change. Peter pre-Pentecost and Peter post-Pentecost. Because when the Holy Ghost fell on Peter, now 50 days later, in front of a mob of raging lunatics that 50 days earlier had crucified his Lord and Savior, he gets up and says, Men and brethren of Jerusalem, let this be made known unto you. This Jesus whom you crucified, God has made Lord in Christ. Uncompromising and bold. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That comes by praying in the Holy Ghost. So those are five effective ways to revolutionize your prayer life. I'll go through them one more time. Number one, enter His gates with thanksgiving in your heart. Enter his gates with thanksgiving in your heart. Five effective ways to revolutionize your prayer life. Number one, enter his gates with thanksgiving in, his, in your heart. Until you ask God for something, thank him for what he has done. Number two, you need to enter his gates boldly with an understanding of your righteousness because of Jesus Christ and because of redemption. We're not old sinner selves old ratchet, wretched rags. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And Christ's righteousness has been imputed unto me. And so I can boldly enter God's throne to obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. Number three, have a word. You can't go to war with just a weapon unless it's loaded with ammunition. The word of the prayer is the weapon. The word of God is the ammunition that we use in prayer. And we stand on God's word. It is the foundation to answered prayer. If you don't have a word, you won't have any answers to your prayers. But if you have a word, you put God in remembrance of his word. And he said, state your case and you'll be acquitted. Number four, use the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is not some four-leaf clover or like a rabbit's tail, that, a rabbit's foot that we just, you know, we just have to give us good luck. It is a weapon that we can use in prayer that whatever we ask, Jesus said, whatsoever you ask in my name, God will give it. God will give it to you. It's an endorsement from heaven that backs up your request. And then number five, pray in the Holy Spirit. It'll build you up on your most holy faith so you never end up, you never end up taking backward steps. It'll fuel your prayer life. It'll, it'll bring excitement. My prayer in getting onto this broadcast today was, Father, anyone that has come into a dull prayer life that has no excitement getting into prayer that it's just become a mundane religious activity just something they do because they were told to do I pray from this broadcast let fresh fire and oil come on them that would reinvigorate the thrill of interacting with you by the spirit in prayer that's been my prayer and I pray that's happened to you if you're watching right now and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ the Bible says the Lord is against the wicked, but his, his eyes and his ears are on the prayers of the righteous. The only way you can become righteous is through becoming a child of God. And it's easy to become a child of God. 
Religion tries to make it difficult. God and Jesus made it very easy. The Bible says, as many as received Christ, turned from their sin, received Christ, to them gave He power to become children of God. Acts 3.19 says that um, repent and be ye converted that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The time of refreshing that you need, you've been depleted. Maybe this last 23 months has just messed you up. You're lacking fuel. You're, you've tried everything. Nothing's working. You've become weary, fatigued, giving up. Hit rock bottom. Jesus is calling your name today. He's standing at the door and he's knocking. And he said, if you'll open up the door, I'll come in and dine with you. The Bible says times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. When God's presence invades a man or a woman's life, times of refreshing come. If you're watching right now and you've never given your life to Jesus, or maybe you have, but you've fallen astray, and you want to make right with the Lord today, you want to get things settled, today's your day. I want you to pray this with me from the bottom of your heart. Say this with me. Say, Father, in Jesus' name, I come to you today. I admit that I'm a sinner. I need your grace today. I believe that you raised Jesus from the dead. And I confess Jesus Christ is my Lord, is my Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Empower me. Where I was weak, make me strong. I thank you that you've forgiven all my sins. I thank you for a clean slate. I am a new creature. From today, I'm moving forward. I'll go where you tell me to go. I'll do what you told me to do. And I'll be what you called me to be. Heaven is my home. God is my Father. Jesus is my Lord. And I'm never turning back. Never, ever, ever. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer with me, I'd love for you to get in contact with me, salvationnow.ca. The first link on my website is I just got saved. Fill it out, get that information to me. Um, we have a link, there's a YouTube video at the bottom of that. That's four basic things I tell every Christian. Go and listen to that YouTube video. It's gonna help you a lot. Welcome to the family of God. Stay connected with us by visiting us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching at TJ Malkanji, or visit us online www.salvationnow.ca God bless you and until next time.